scripture reading this morning is a section from Genesis 1 and 2. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper to fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it in place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man had made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. Good morning. My name is Taylor. Would you join me now as we pray? Lord, we admit that we need your help this morning. We depend on the word of Christ the Spirit of Christ to help us think as we ought, feel as we ought, become who we ought. So please, would you have your way in us and help us now, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, please be seated. It's good to be with you this morning. And I'm glad to see we're extending summer, apparently. One more day, one more week, maybe, if we're lucky. The last couple weeks, we have been talking about what makes New Life Church unique, in particular, um, that we are dependent on the gospel for all of our life. That is not just the thing that we believe to get saved, it is what we believe daily to remain saved, that one day we will be presented as someone who is saved and free in Jesus. And that transforms kind of how we do everything here. We're one church in many locations made up of many life groups, which we depend on to teach and admonish one another, encourage each other in this growth in the gospel. And those life groups are made up of a number of individual disciples who are all aimed at the same thing together. And that is, I think, uh, an important place to start this morning because we're no longer talking in that little series about what makes New Life Church unique. We're talking in the Gospel of Matthew now. And if, you're, if, you, if that's not front and center, you will now think it's time to get to work. And it's time to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But we haven't been doing that all along, and we're not doing it today. Okay? So this morning we turn our attention to the Gospel of Matthew. We're listening now to the words of the Savior and King as He now instructs this way of new life. And um, just a side note here too. In the last couple weeks there was way more to say than I could ever have said in 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 minutes. So parents... Um, I'm going to do my best to um, stick at my 35-minute timeline. So don't look at your clocks, don't, but um, help me, and, and thank you for your grace along this. But we better get going, okay? So we're not going to dilly-dally anymore. In the first verses of Matthew 19, please turn there in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. In the first verses, we discover the context in which this teaching takes place. And it says this, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. 
and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Okay, now I say it sets the context, but it begs a million questions. Where is he going? Where is he coming from? What sayings did he just finish? And those words don't really, right here, don't need a ton of like explanation. But we do, I think, need to spend a moment here rehearsing all of Matthew's gospel up to this point. And I'm still going to promise 35 minutes and no more. But the, all of the book of Matthew, okay? And so, so far, to get us caught up in this time and place, we need to zoom out a bit. And the overarching theme that you would see emerge in the Gospel of Matthew is that of the kingdom of heaven. Namely, as it is revealed, brought down by the king of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus. And right in there, prominent themes emerge that are the kingdom of heaven, which of course has a king who fulfills. Okay, that word fulfill is a, is a prominent theme in Matthew's gospel as Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament. And then he aims at wholeness for his people. Okay, so those are some of the main themes. And I'll unpack those. I'll highlight those as we briefly fly over the book, starting at its beginning. Okay, so if you're in your Bible... You could just thumb through with me. In Matthew chapter 1, the fulfillment theme is on full display in these opening chapters of Matthew's gospel. In particular, um, you see a genealogy, okay? It begins with this list of names highlighting that Jesus is the fulfillment, the completion of each one of these lives and stories that have all been pointing to him. In fact, all of the promises in the Old Testament have found their yes in Jesus. Everything that God has promised to his people has found its yes in Jesus. All of the longing, all of the hoping of all of human history is found and fulfilled in Jesus. The King has finally come. Emmanuel, God is with us. Finally, when you turn a few pages over to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus opens his mouth and begins to teach in these famous words known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is both detailing this new way of being in the kingdom of heaven and at the same time is fulfilling the Old Testament, particularly the Old Testament law. His opening words show how upside down the kingdom of earth really is in contrast to this new kingdom of heaven. He says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And it goes on and on. And this bears repeating this morning because they set the frame, the canvas, so to speak, upon now which all of uh, practical life is painted. Namely, those words that open Jesus' sermon communicate that his purpose, his intent, is that humanity would flourish in this new way of being. Literally, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are the merciful. 
And these again, okay, we're going to depend on the gospel here again. This, this is not now, we need to mourn a little bit more so that we get a little bit more mercy. This is, this is people who are already mourning, are happy in the kingdom of heaven. This is, this is for a new people, a new way of being. And the underdogs here, the people who know their need, are the ones who flourish and come alive as Jesus intends. Furthermore, these opening lines in Jesus' uh, Jesus' first sermon here emphasize that the kingdom of heaven is more about an inner life, an inner identity, than an outward behavior. And that's something we've talked about over the last month now. This becomes a major theme throughout the book at this point. And the Pharisees, okay, we're flying over, we zoom out, we see this little group of people that kind of follow, follow around and antagonize Jesus on every page. The Pharisees are some key antagonists, and they're, they're this group of religious professionals who mastered exterior obedience to the law, who kept the law, who enforced the law, who twisted the law to their advantage. But in fact, their hearts are far from God. As Jesus teaches in this opening sermon, Matthew accentuates a motif that Jesus uses time and again. It is this, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, do not murder, but I say to you, anyone who is angry at his brother will be liable of judgment. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. So the strong emphasis through Matthew's gospel as he recounts Jesus' teaching is that the law that you have heard that it was said is fulfilled, is given its new and deeper and greatest true meaning not by the exterior, outward, legalistic, ritualistic obedience, but is fulfilled in your heart. As your heart is drawn to Christ and faithful to Him. This theme then is expounded in Matthew 5.48. We will go much faster in a moment, I promise. This is just a very important chapter. Uh, In Matthew 5.48, Jesus says, You therefore, okay, after unpacking the law, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay. Let's just stop there and we can throw in the towel. The Pharisees would have heard these words. They would have heard, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And they would have heard a a hint at a refrain throughout the the whole Old Testament law, which is, you must be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Be holy as I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. But when Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, he's using a different Word. He's playing on this word. And instead of the word holy, he is pointing at a wholeness. In, in, in all of lifeness, a oneness where your, your head is not thinking thoughts and your hands are, are disobeying your head and your heart is conflicted and torn. You struggle in the tension. He's aiming at creating a people who are whole, who are wholly alive, but who are holy 
his. And even in this aim, he's fulfilling the Old Testament promises because this life of wholeness was promised by the prophet Jeremiah who wrote about a day when God would take out the heart of stone and God would put in its place a heart of flesh. This new way of being human comes with power. For God himself has come to do that thing which we could never do for ourselves. And so we actually could look around and say, be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Because He is in the process of making you perfect. At the end of the sermon now, in Matthew 8 and 9, the the sermon that was preached on the mountain, this new law, this new way of being, breaks into ordinary life. And everywhere people go, they are in awe of Jesus' authority. Okay, The sick are in awe of his authority. The crowds are in awe at his authority. The storms are in awe of his authority. The cancer and the leprosy are in awe of his authority. And then in Matthew 10, this, this new way of being led by the king of the kingdom of heaven expands and begins to reach the nations including all people who are not Jewish. Again, fulfilling God's promise to Abraham that every nation on the earth would be blessed through him. And here we're going to go fast because Matthew goes faster. Over the next several chapters, we have story after story after teaching after teaching, which are really highlighting the differing responses to Jesus as the kingdom of heaven breaks in. And the point of these accounts here in the middle of Matthew is, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with him? Good teacher, maybe. Maybe crazy guy, maybe. Maybe magician. Or is he actually who he says he is? The king of this heavenly kingdom breaking in. What you do with Jesus has everything to do with whether or not you enter the kingdom of heaven and this new way of being human. So with all of this backdrop, okay, Jesus has turned. So he's not just wandering around and teaching, bringing the kingdom out to the the outer regions of Israel. He has now foretold his death and resurrection two times by Matthew 19, and he has turned and is returning to Jerusalem where he will willingly and knowingly be unjustly tried, executed, and rise again. So with all that in the backdrop, as we turn to Matthew 19, the king is fulfilling the Old Testament and inviting people everywhere into this new way of being that they might flourish in a holistic life of faith. And we need that backdrop for several reasons. First, this is the first sermon that we've heard here at New Life Oregon City from the Gospel of Matthew. And we're starting in Matthew 19. So we need to at least do, at least have in our minds stuff that comes before it. Um, the other congregations of New Life Church have been kind of growing in this development of the story for two years. So you just got a two years worth of sermons in 20 minutes. It doesn't matter how long today takes. You can thank me. Um, secondly, our text this morning introduces a sensitive subject, divorce. But the manner in which Jesus addresses it is not a diversion. 
from how he has, from what he has been developing all along. Jesus' intent is to inaugurate a new, holistic, flourishing way of being and at the same time fulfilling and upholding God's design from the beginning. And we'll see that again today. And I'll just admit, you might, uh, you might find this sermon a hard one to hear. It may open for some of you old wounds and dredge up repressed memories. All of us, every single one of us, has been affected, I am sure, by divorce in one way or another. So trust me when I say it's been a hard one to prepare. It's not been a super fun week to be a preacher, okay? I wouldn't pick it. But here's why we're going to start in Matthew 19. Because the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly. And that word that dwells in us richly is profitable for our life, for our godliness. And if those things are true, then we're not going to exclude certain things we don't like or don't want to talk about. But instead, we're going to just jump in. And so my aim this morning is not to say any more than Jesus says here, nor any less. Okay? And I want to point you, as he does, to a holistic, flourishing way of being as citizens in the kingdom of heaven, particularly as it pertains to, to marriage and singleness. So please look with me there as we now pick up the story in chapter 19, verse 3, and the trap you'll see is ready, set, go. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus, okay, is moving towards Jerusalem, the epicenter of Judaism, and a great crowd is following him. And these, well, he healed them with compassion. And these pesky Pharisees, well, they might be a little bit jealous because they're not quite as popular as Jesus is. They might be a little bit embittered by the power and influence that he has but either way, they're trying to trap him here. And you need to know that the questions they ask are trap questions. These are not good questions. They're not honest questions. In fact, the word trap is the same word that is used when Satan himself is tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Okay, so these questions are there are honest questions about marriage and divorce to ask, and these are not them. The Pharisees picked divorce because it was a cultural minefield. There were two schools of thought that were both opposed and divisive. In Judaism at the time, divorce was common. Okay, And one school of thought said, yes, you can divorce. Um, you can divorce your wife for any reason. She cooked the steak, well done, she gone. That kind, of, that kind of reason. The other school interpreted this Mosaic law narrowly by holding that divorce was only allowed on the grounds of adultery. So no matter what Jesus says in response to this question, he will certainly offend half of his followers and his influence will be diminished. We need to understand that cultural context and the question that's framed in that context because it was not specific. The question's not specific. It's general. 
and generalities don't work in matters of divorce. And second, the question was about what is permissible and what is not permissible. And as you'll see in a moment, that's what Jesus has never allowed. He's never been about which outward behavior is okay and which outward behavior is not okay. He's going to target the heart again. Again. He's creating a new whole person with a new heart. And in particular, that heart is undivided. And so the permissibility is not in question. So Jesus, in verse 4, continues. He answers, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, pay attention here to what Jesus does. He does not answer their question. Okay, so I am not going to answer that question either. And this is his pattern with the Pharisees. Instead, he does what he often does with them and appeals to what they already know. You have heard that it was said, right? And where he goes with his answer is a first order issue. He appeals to the more original and consequently the more weighty issue. He doesn't give them a list of acceptable circumstances. Instead, he gives a definition of God's intent for marriage all along. And he brings them to the first pages of their Bible, which Amanda read for you a few moments ago. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And in chapter 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so in his response, he points directly to the original intent and design for marriage. Namely, that male and female are created in God's image. They represent him to the world around and that together for life, their one flesh relationship reflects his image as well. Jesus is clear. God created them in their distinctiveness, in their unity, was the plan from the beginning. Now this means many things for us. Okay? It on the outset defines marriage as God designed it. One man one woman become one flesh for life. Secondly, it means that the one flesh relationship of marriage is of paramount importance. It means, men, that your daddy no longer takes care of you, that you take care of your wife. It means, women, that your mommy isn't your closest confidant anymore. It means you confide in your husband. It at least means that. Because in this one flesh relationship, a husband and wife are imaging God to the world around them. Displaying how the one God in three persons can exist in perfect harmony and completion. How would any part of creation witness that? Unless a husband and wife operate as a single unit, physically, emotionally, financially, relationally, experientially, and yet also as to it distinct 
persons with unique hobbies and skills and passions and responsibilities. This means that in marriage, your oneness and your distinctness showcase the God who made you. Your oneness is a gift to the world. And your distinctness is a gift to the world. So Jesus kind of dodges the question. He says, well, let me remind you, you know what, you know what this, you've heard it before? The first words in your Bible defining and answer this question for you. And you notice that divorce is not even in his, his response at all. Perhaps here then, the Pharisees imagine that they've got him or that they maybe need a second jab, something to that effect. And so they continue with the second question, verse 7. They say to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Once again, Jesus does not answer their question directly. In fact, his answer repudiates, it undermines, it undercuts their very question. You notice, you notice they say, why did Moses command? And he says, um, Moses allowed those are very different words. In a culture where divorce is normative, even like our own, this distinction is critical. As already established, based on God's intent in creation, divorce is neither commanded nor allowed. But based on Moses' later instruction, divorce becomes, it's well, still not commanded, but it becomes permissible. And what reason does he give? Because of your hardness of heart. Because of your hardness of heart. And we have to dwell on this here for a moment because God's design, his intent is that marriage would be one man, one woman, one flesh for life. But because of your hardness of heart, concession must be made to dissolve that union. This phrase, because of your hardness of heart, makes all the difference here. In fact, it's the very variable that makes any statement about divorce, any universal or absolute statement about divorce, impossible. Do you know what a hard heart means? Do you know what it looks, looks like? It looks like an insensitivity, an ambivalence to God and God's heart. It looks like a disregard for God's design. It looks like incorrigible sinful behavior, in particular sin against that one flesh relationship. Probably at its, at its base level, uh, in particular, a hard heart is a selfish one, a self-centered heart, one without regard for God, one without regard for spouse, one without regard for others. And it is here, okay, that I need to be clear. Because that shows up in a myriad of ways. 
And one of the manifestations of a hard heart in our context today is abuse in any of its forms, physical, emotional, sexual, psychological. And I must be explicit. In this community, abuse in any of its forms will not be tolerated. And what Jesus, what neither Jesus nor I am saying is that a husband and wife must continue life as normal because of the first order. There is now, because of the hardness of heart, concession for divorce. He says in verse 9, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, again, I'm aiming for precise language here, okay? What Jesus is saying is that if someone divorces their spouse for any reason other than sexual immorality of their spouse, they commit the sin of adultery. So is he saying that divorce even on account of sexual unfaithfulness or adultery is okay or permissible? No. He's not giving permission. For from the beginning, he says, it was not so. What he is saying is that divorce, which is not on account of sexual immorality, is sin in itself, in, particularly, in particular adultery. So either way, when divorce happens, sin, a deviation, a transgression, a breaking of God's design and intent is at the center. Either way, it is due to a hardness of heart either as a reaction against the one who has committed adultery or as the act of committing adultery itself. Now that is true in light of the design and intent all along, but there is, in fact, concession made for divorce in the law of Moses in the event of the sexual unfaithfulness of a spouse. Meaning that while sin may be the source and root cause of any divorce, one may, with permission, divorce a spouse who is sexually immoral or unfaithful to that marriage, that one flesh relationship. And it begs a further question that's not asked here in the text about the nature of that one flesh relationship. What is it about the one flesh relationship that makes sexual immorality damaging to the point at which it may be irreparable. I use that word irreparable. But if you look back just a couple of verses at the end of Matthew 18, Jesus concludes a parable with these words, forgive your brother from your heart. So my aim in, in shepherding you in your marriages will always be to seek forgiveness, to seek restoration, to return to God's design for your marriage. But there are instances where that is not possible because of a hardness of heart. And that's why the concession is given. Because in those cases, the one flesh relationship is broken. It is already violated. And at a minimum, what it means to be in a one 
flesh relationship is to be physically faithful to one another. So to violate that physical union through sexual unfaithfulness is to have already distorted the image of God that is manifested in that one flesh relationship. The design is already broken. But we're not after here what is permissible or impermissible. That's not what Jesus is after. He is creating a people with a softness of heart. Who can forgive each other and reconcile each other despite every degree of sin. And we see that intent come into clearer focus when he now includes people who have not been married or who are no longer married in the conversation. In verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Just avoid that problem altogether. <laughs> if the stakes are as high as Jesus has just elevated them, then you can definitely imagine a little bit of playful jostling amongst, among these bachelors and Peter. Um, they get it. We can't play at marriage. And if we can't play at marriage, then it might just be better not to, not to marry at all because we can play when we're not married. But there's another dimension at work here in this comment that is not really so hilarious. Jewish men were expected to marry. Jewish religious leaders were required to marry. And powerless Jewish women were vulnerable at best if unmarried or forced into an unsavory occupation just to pay the bills if unmarried. So there was a lot of pressure to get married. And what Jesus says next is remarkable. It's confusing, but it's remarkable. In verse 11, he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there, have, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. He, Jesus, himself unmarried, responds to this maybe apparent jesting by seriously entertaining singleness as a viable alternative to marriage. What you notice he's doing here is he is, he is not elevating one over the other. Singleness is not preferable to marriage because it is not the design. And marriage is not preferable to singleness because it is hard. For different reasons, the life of the married person and the single person matter to God. Now, in our context, I mean, the word was eunuch. Okay, that's not a good word. It's, it's, it carries exclusively negative connotation. But as Jesus uses it, the word eunuch simply comes to mean... It takes the form, the sense of someone who's not married. And he says, some are that way against their choice from birth. Some other factor that is inherited from birth inhibits or prohibits them from marrying. And he says, some are made that way also against their choice. Okay, now that's, that's a circumstance we don't see much of today of, because rarely are male prisoners of war castrated and then indentured to serve in a captor's harem. It just doesn't usually happen today. 
But regardless, it's again against their choice. And now the third, uh, in the third here he says, some are this way, some are single because they've chosen the single life for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. We've addressed those of you who are married extensively this morning. But some of you are single, and some of you are single against your will. Some of you, great against it. Some of you would give anything to be married. But some of you are single by choice. And you've weighed any number of factors and have determined that for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, you'll be single. And notice what he says to you. In in, in either category. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. And then he concludes, let the one who is able to receive this, these words, this way of life, receive it. And what Jesus is doing is he is pledging his Father's unique care and provision for this life of singleness in a way that it completes the individual. God is for you. If you can accept this calling and live this life, it is a gift. Whether or not you chose the single life, God is for you. You're not out of place. You're not failing to live into God's design. You're not falling short of your potential. You're not incapable of of imaging a one flesh relationship to the world. No, instead, in your singleness, you have everything you need. You could fight against it, or you could embrace and, and receive God's provision for you because, okay, Just as in marriage, Jesus is after the heart. He is aiming at human flourishing through holistic, soft-hearted devotion to Jesus. So in singleness, he aims at exactly the same thing. But what if we've already failed? What if we've already acted out this hardness of heart? What if we've already discussed the possibility of divorce or we grate maybe against our singleness? What hope is there for us? And Jesus is speaking these words, okay, as he is headed to the place of his crucifixion so that... Hard-hearted sinners might go free. He's having this conversation on the way to die in the place of adulterers and abusers, pornographers and viewers, divorcers and divorcees, married people and single people, all of whom, every single one, are hard-hearted and need a miracle, a miracle of mercy. And Jesus is in that place exchanging their life for his. Perhaps through a softening of the heart at the mercy of God, they would receive it and exchange their life for his. Now this is the invitation for all of us. Okay? 
and we come to the table this morning. It's over here on your right. For the first time in this space, to celebrate communion together, not because we have our acts together, not because we've not because we've figured it out and cracked the code. But because of the infinite mercy that God has shown each of us in Christ. And if you have not yet exchanged your life dying to your old self for Christ's, in which you put on the new self, please do not participate in this part of our gathering. And just remain seated during the next song and come to Christ who stands ready to welcome you. If you have received Christ's life as your own, then you can be certain, without a doubt, you must be certain, you need to hear it again and again and again, that your guilt has been forgiven and your shame has been cleaned and your fear has been erased. You are at peace with God through Christ. And what God is doing in you is preparing you, in you, in each of us, he's preparing a bride. And one day, what he will do, yes, is present that bride to Christ without any blemish. She'll be radiant. And one day, you, yes, you, will also be radiant. So come to the table during the next song. And when the song's finished, I'll get back up and I'll lead us as we celebrate all together, okay, the union that we have with Christ and the union that we have with one another. So would you join me now as we pray? Father in heaven, you, you have had every reason to divorce us on account of our hardness of heart on account of our falling short of your character and design. But you haven't. We come to the table marveling that you haven't and that you won't dismiss us for our unfaithfulness to you. So would you meet us again with mercy even now and assure us of your never-ending, never-giving-up always and forever love for us, which is our only hope. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.